You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia. Let's head to the Leather District in downtown Boston, where among artist lofts and converted warehouses, we'll find one of the more intellectual addresses in the entire Northeast. It's the abode of the philosopher and novelist Rebecca Goldstein, and that of her husband, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. The occasion is the publication of Rebecca's latest novel, called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. Rebecca Goldstein, welcome to ThoughtCast. You've studied and taught philosophy, but perhaps you're best known for writing philosophical novels, starting with The Mind-Body Problem in 1983. Do you think philosophy and fiction are good bedfellows? You know, that's a contentious <laughs> issue. Uh, I do, uh, but that makes me very non-mainstream. You know, Plato, the very beginning and the dawn of philosophy, had banished the poets, the epic poets. And there has been an uneasy relationship ever since between philosophy and literature and fiction. Do you think part of the reason why philosophers are uncomfortable with creativity is because they can't control it. Oh, yes. And Plato had a great respect for the power of beauty, but he feared it because it can sway us uh, into views that are not, aren't true. He, more than anybody, distrusted art and said that artists are out of their minds, you know, which is another way of saying that we don't know where it, where it comes from. It's not under our control. Um, so there's been, ever since, an uneasy sort of relationship. I understand that uneasy relationship. I'm uneasy with it myself. I am always arguing with Plato in my head. I am always trying to write fiction that Plato would approve of. I felt for many different philosophical questions, I can write about them in a straight philosophical mode, or I can embody them in characters. I can show how they're embedded in life, how they matter, and that's something I can get at in a, in a novel, I can delve into, I can tunnel into it and bring the reader with me. So when you say tunneling, it makes me think of quantum tunneling, a similarly mysterious process. Yes, absolutely true. And actually, the novel, the last novel I had published previous to this one was called Properties of Light, a novel of love betrayal and quantum physics. And quantum physics is one of those areas that generates such different points of view. There's a lot of almost religious passion. Speaking of passion, Rebecca, your writing is full of it, and you seem to have several themes that you attack in your work. In addition to philosophy, you often throw in academic politics, Judaism, genius, mathematics, and, of course, sex. Mm. Yes, I guess those are the things I think about <laughs> all the time, yes. <laughs> You're squeezing a lot into these novels. Uh -huh. Do you ever feel they're a bit crowded? Oh, I, I, I like crowded novels. I like, I don't like thin novels. That's my big complaint about contemporary fiction, actually. Rebecca, let's take a look at your latest book, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. Now, at the end of the book, you list these arguments and their rebuttals. So, whose side are you on, Rebecca? <laughs> For starters, aren't you an atheist? Um, I am an atheist. Uh, I am an atheist, but I have been 
a religious person. I was born into a, a very religious household. I spent a good deal of my life, even my adult life, within a religious community. Um, mostly I was not a believer when I did it, uh, but, um, but I did, and I have, not only do I have a respect for people within it, I have a great love for the tradition from which I came, a great love for, uh, uh, for that particular narrative. And so, may I say, yeah. this struggle that you yourself have, have lived with, yes, being in a religious community while not being religious, yes, is a struggle that you impose on one of your fictional characters, Azaria, right. a young mathematical genius who also happens to be the heir to a Hasidic sect called the Valdeners. Were you working out your own demons with him? You know, I had thought of his story, I suppose, I'm never, I'm never totally conscious of why particular stories occur to me. But I, you know, I, I think probably unconsciously the fact that I started to think about a little boy who would be born with prodigious gifts, you know, gifts that, that don't come in every generation. And it's a mysterious, wondrous thing. But to be born with those gifts into a community in which those gifts can't flourish, you know, seemed to me just in and of itself such a tragic story. So I, I thought of this story. It wasn't that I was thinking, you know, about myself or anything like that. But you know, the reason the story would occur to me um, probably has something to do with my my past. But I could understand him very, very well. I could understand this dilemma torn between irreconcilable loves. What do you do then? Well, you know what? And he has the particular, unlike me, I I could leave nothing really. I made a few people unhappy, my family, but. Um, he has the responsibility for the continuity of this community because in, in Hasidism, uh, the figure of the head rabbi, the Rebbe, it's passed on from father to son and without, he's the only son, and without an heir, the, the community would, would, would disappear. So he really has this responsibility on him. And it was just, uh, for me, a, a very tragic dilemma that I put him through. I thought I actually was going to have to kill him, but that, you know, but I... <laughs> well, we won't reveal yes. what he chooses, <laughs> Yes. but I would like to return to Azaria and his dilemma. First, let's talk about your main character, Cass Seltzer, who's a professor of psychology and also an atheist, and his peers have called him an atheist with a soul. How come? <laughs> Cass Seltzer does not believe that there is a God. He thinks the arguments for God's existence all fail. He writes a, an appendix to his book to show this, and I reproduce his appendix uh, in the back of my book. He also thinks we have an explanation for why, nevertheless, people would believe, uh, even though the arguments fail. And even more strongly for Cass Seltzer, this just doesn't look like a world that has a God who cares about us, that the sort of apologetics, the, the, the mental gymnastics one has to go through to try to reconcile what happens in this world, the degree of suffering, suffering of innocence, of children, uh, with you know, a God who is omnipotent and, uh, and cares about us and loves us. To him, 
the ways of explaining this are offensive. They don't do justice to the reality of suffering. It, 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 it offends him. So it, it, he has a kind of soulful rejection of theism. He's also the soulful for me because he's, although he's an atheist, he's filled with what I call sort of an ontological wonder. I mean, he has a, always, quite often, a sort of spiritual experience of just what a wondrous thing is, uh, this world is. You've used the expression, the Kantian sublime. The Kantian sublime. He's very susceptible to this. And I think, you know, many people who are religious are susceptible to this, and they take it to the next step. And, and he feels gratitude to the universe, uh, you know, to the laws of nature for being so beautiful. Math is beautiful, music's beautiful, art is beautiful. You can get sort of moved and think in your gratitude that there must be something divine beyond uh, to which we should be grateful. He withstands that. He won't make that move. Um, and that's really, for me, what captures why he's the atheist with a soul. At a reading you gave recently at the Brookline Booksmith on your new book, you describe Cass as having a great understanding, a respect, and even a love of religious experience. And I'm guessing that Cass's response to religion isn't all that different from yours. Yeah, he does. He, he loves it and, and he fears it, and I do too. <laughs> um, you know, because it can induce that sense of, of certainty and therefore a rejection of those. You know, what is wrong with these other people that they're rejecting this certainty? He's also emphatically rejecting of the view that morality and religion are inextricably bound up with one another. And that, he feels, and I do too, is not only fallacious, but it's pernicious. It means that if you have a certain religion, religious code, you will think that people who don't have it can't distinguish between right and wrong, or even you can even go further and think that they're evil. Uh, and it's your duty to convince them and you know, to use all sorts of force to convince them for their own good. I mean, Lord knows, <laughs> we've suffered a lot uh, on this planet because of that kind of religious passion. So the very strength of it and the very power of it is something to, to fear. I'm curious, Rebecca, do you assume that the journalists who speak to you about this book are also atheists, generally? I don't. I have learned that uh, that would be a mistake. It used to be, you know, when I, when I left my Orthodox community and became a philosopher, I mean, every, almost everybody I, I spoke to within the philosophical community took atheism for granted. I mean, it was something, if you were a theist, you were a bit abashed about it, and, you know, it was something to be very defensive about. And so I lived in a false world of thinking that, oh, yes, all thinking people now have gotten beyond this. This is not true. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with Rebecca Goldstein, who received her doctorate in philosophy from Princeton and went on to teach philosophy before trying her pen at fiction. Her first novel, The Mind-Body Problem, was a critical success, and she went on to write five other novels, including Properties of Light, Mazel, and The Dark Sister. Rebecca, you've been described at times as a Jewish writer, and in fact, many of your novels revolve around Jewish themes. 
What do you make of that adjective in this context? Hmm. Yeah, I never know what to make of that adjective, I have to say. Um, I am interested in religion and, uh, you know, it comes out not in all my novels, but in some. And Judaism is the religion I know very well. And, uh, you know, so when I talk about religion, it's often Judaism. Um, but there is more yeah. to being Jewish than Judaism. Well, this is certainly true. And that in itself is fascinating to me. You know that my very strong atheist husband, who is also Jewish, feels very Jewish. You know, if Harvard Hillel asks him to do anything, he will do it for them. He has a kind of loyalty to it. And, and that's, that's something, I don't know if it's unique about Jews. Judaism is not just a religion. And so it's a good vantage point to realize that religion itself is not just about belief in God. It's not just about the metaphysics. It's, there's something encapsulated in the dilemmas of being Jewish when you're an atheist that seemed to me to capture something about the dilemmas of, 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 of religious sensibility. If I remember correctly, the main character in The Mind-Body Problem says something like, the Jews at Princeton didn't seem Jewish, but everybody at Columbia seemed Jewish even if they weren't Jewish. Right, yes. <laughs> and that actually did strike me very much. I had done my undergraduate work at Barnard at Columbia University, and then I did my graduate work at Princeton. And, and <laughs> that struck me as very, very true. So, uh, it was, uh, there was something about a New York school or being a New York intellectual that the Jewish mannerisms seep in, and Princeton wasn't like that. What is it to seem Jewish? What is it to seem Jewish? Well... Whether or not you actually are. Whether or not... <laughs> it is. Um, there's a certain, I think, playfulness with ideas. Uh, comfort with ideas, a lack of awe. Uh, we don't keep them on a shelf, right? Uh, to the, we take them off and we <laughs> throw them at each other no matter how fragile they are. And, uh, and a kind of irony, kind of humor about everything, existence. It's a very questioning religion the way it's very intellectual. It's good training for analytic philosophy, in fact, because it's filled with making distinctions. To me, of course, it feels very homey, but that could be just because it was my home. Homey. Homey. It's they're very homey, and homey, and ideas are homey. They're ours uh, to do with what we will. Well, speaking of your home, you did mention that you were raised in an Orthodox family. You did go to a restrictive school. Your father was a cantor. How did you break away from that? Oh, well, I broke away in my mind much sooner than I broke away in practice. And when I was in that very, you, just, you describe it correctly as restrictive, it was an all-girls school, and we were not even encouraged to go on to college, really mar uh, encouraged to marry as soon as we got out of high school and have children. And, um, and I used to play hooky quite a lot and go to the library. You know, it was, I was you know, eager to, to break out of it in my mind. But it was there that I first heard about Spinoza in his Jewish history class, and he was spoken of just, I mean, very briefly, but as a cautionary tale. This is what happens, uh, little girls. If you, if you ask the wrong questions, you know, 
God gave him such good brains, but look what he did with those brains. He and what Spinoza did was get himself ejected from his own community. Exactly. He, he got himself ejected from, you know, banished from his uh, community of, um, in Amsterdam. And then he was denounced viciously by greater Christian Europe. I mean, he was a, a dangerous man to acknowledge well into the Age of Enlightenment. So he's, he was, you know, not just the Jews rejected him, but Christianity as well and Christian thinkers. So um, even into Kant's day. And he's your guy. He is my guy. I <laughs> heard about this guy and I understood so well what he went through in the 17th century. I mean, I was a barely educated little girl, and I felt like, oh, I know you. I know you, Baruch Spinoza. And especially when my teacher said that he didn't show his heresy until after his parents had died. Um, his mother had died when he was young, but he waited until his father had died, and he went to the synagogue, and he paid the charitable dues. He did everything he was supposed to do. In, meanwhile, inside, harboring completely different ideas. And he's, he, he was my role model, and I, I did the same thing. Uh, so I did not break away until both my parents were gone. Huh. This brings us back to 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a work of fiction, and your character, Azaria, who you've put into this struggle. He has to choose. And I'd like to go to the book if I can. Uh, there's a discussion between Cass Seltzer, the main character, this professor of psychology, and Azaria about Azaria's dilemma. And Cass says to Azaria, why should the Valderners, which is the Hasidic sect that Azaria is heir to, why should the Valderners continue with their superstitions and their insularity and their stubborn refusal to learn anything from outside? Why is that something to perpetuate? And then Cass goes on to say, let's say you leave and the community suffers for a while, then disintegrates and disperses to other Hasidic groups Maybe even because of the trauma of your leaving, the members become assimilated into the modern world. Tell me what's lost. A few fewer false beliefs knocking about in the world? And uh, I'd love it, Rebecca, if you could uh, read Azaria's response to Cass. Azaria stared down at the table a while before he spoke. It's tragic, a diminishment when a people goes out of existence, a way of life a culture, a language. He spoke slowly, either from emotion or because he was thinking out his line of reasoning as he went. But that's not even the heart of it, he continued. No, the heart of it is the story of this people, my people, my Valdeners. You are who you are. Cass saw with horror that Azaria's eyes were welling. Had my grandfather, Rav Yisrael ben Rav Eliezer, not fought with all his life to bring over as many Valderners as he could in 1939, then there would be none living now. And even so, he wept on his deathbed for the lives he had and saved. That bloodline that every Valderner child can recite as easily as Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the iconic Jewish prayer. That would have ended in the burning shul if not for him. So how can I, Azariah, Ben Rav Betzalel, Ben Rav Yisrael, Ben Rav Eliezer, 
decide to be the executioner now? How can it be by my hand? That is clearly a powerful dilemma, Rebecca. But maybe for Azaria, and perhaps for you too, it's not really so much about belief as about identity, Jewish identity. Yes, and I ascribe philosophically and emotionally to Spinoza's view after he left this community that we shouldn't inherit our identity. We should actively carve our identity. My identity shouldn't be determined by the fact I was born into one particular group or, or, or gender or nationality. It should be from what I've, I've made of my life, what I actively have thought about, what I've, not, not beliefs I've inherited, but beliefs that I've struggled to ground with evidence and reason. And to the extent that all of us do that, we will form the same sort of beliefs if we let the truth determine us. And to a certain extent, Spinoza promised us, have the same identity, share in the same identity, that it's a good thing to give up these parochial identities. Uh, it's wreaked havoc in the world, in fact. But we, maybe it's our evolutionary heritage, do care deeply about our own kin. You know, it's a survival mechanism to, we want our own kin to perpetuate our genes. Um, so we have to find a happy medium between our evolutionary heritage and our reason and our thinking and our understanding and our ethical development. These are all struggles and these are the struggles that animate my fiction. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm speaking with the novelist and philosopher Rebecca Goldstein. In addition to her fiction, she's also written nonfiction studies of the mathematician Kurt Gödel and the philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Rebecca, a new book by Nicholas Wade called The Faith Instinct offers an evolutionary take on religion and argues that it's served an evolutionarily advantageous purpose. Do you think Judaism has been evolutionarily advantageous to Jews? Hmm. It's interesting. Sure has attracted a lot of bad attention, I have to say, being Jewish, you know. It's, um, you know, they've uh, been much persecuted um, and uh, many other groups have had it in mind to wipe them off the face of the earth. So in that sense, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know that the, the binding together that you're, um, that somehow you have collective interests that, that all tightly knit groups have, uh, that you feel a responsibility to people in that particular group. Jews, Jews have that to a very large extent. Uh, you go to a strange city if you're an Orthodox Jew and you find out who the other Orthodox Jews are and they'll take, and if you're lost, they'll feed you and they'll take care of you and they'll, um, maybe because of being such a marginalized people, uh, be living in the diaspora so well, there's a very strong sense of taking care of each other. And I guess that might have some survival value. You actually write, or perhaps Cass Seltzer writes in one of his arguments for the existence of God and its counter-argument that Jews benefited from the diaspora. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. if there hadn't been one, they might have been because they were a small group assimilated by a larger tribe. Yeah, yeah, no, that actually uh, 
I was surprised when I thought of that. <laughs> it was, you know, the dispersal itself, you know, makes it very hard to, uh, <laughs> to get rid of us. But that it is, uh, yes, because I've, I actually had heard that the very survival of the Jews is evidence that there is a God and that the Jews were chosen to carry out a certain purpose in this world, not chosen in the sense that they're better or, um, or you know, and superior in any way, but that they have a certain moral responsibility and are supposed to be a sort of model of behavior and in that way um, educate. And that their survival, despite all of of the attempts to, to destroy them is some sort of evidence that they really are playing this role in this cosmic narrative. Um, I mean, again, I think this is not a good argument and I try to refute it and say, yes, in fact, some of the things that they went through that, that caused the dispersal actually helped them to survive, uh, as well as the culture that they developed because they didn't have their own state. And so the identity had to be in the culture, in the civilization, in something that you could carry in your brain. And even if you were banished, and they were constantly being banished in Europe, one country after the next, um, you could leave all your possessions, but yet you could take what was important to you, your knowledge, your, your values. And so this kind of easily transportable civilization helped them to survive in the face, and, and was even, um, it was a response to the persecution, which in spite of the persecution actually helped them to survive. Rebecca, since you don't believe in God, I'm wondering, do you think Judaism remains advantageous? Advantageous to the world, to Jews? <laughs> I, I would be interested in, in either or both. I wouldn't want it to disappear. <laughs> And you know that's a kind of uh, contradiction on my part because I have to depend on people whose beliefs I I believe to be false, uh, who are carrying it on, who really practice it, who feel that it's important uh, for their children to marry other Jews and for this somehow this identity to continue. I I would never impose that on my children. I don't feel that way, but yet you know I would be sad. I think. You know, there's the, the philosopher in me, and you know, and there's the novelist. And this narrative—it's a heroic—it's a heroic story. Uh, this kind of continuous story of the Jews. I would—I would hate it to end, actually. So, but I said Judaism. I didn't yeah. say Jews. Judaism. I don't. You know, I do. I like. Do I want it? I don't know. Are don't they know. separable? Yeah. You know, they are now, but only because there are so many people who are carrying on the religion. If, if, if everybody, if all Jews were to become like me and my husband and my kids, no, <laughs> it would not continue. Um, so it's a contradiction that I live with. Rebecca, that's about all we can squeeze in. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Rebecca Goldstein, the author of 36 Arguments for the Existence of God and The Mind-Body Problem on ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atiyah. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.